Welcome to the show, everyone. This is an interview I did with Shintaro Higashi back in June 2020. He is a high-end judoka and has a lifetime of training and competing. Enjoy the show. We'll kind of dive into your beginnings of martial arts here, and I'd like to start with your dad, uh, Noyoshi uh, Higashi. Can you kind of give a little background of that and how that led you into as well starting martial arts? Sure. You know, my father is 83 years old, and, you know, he did judo back in Japan since he was a little kid. You know, he grew up in the World War, so, you know, it was rough upbringing. You know, the World War, I think, ended when he was eight. So he was very hungry, he lived near an airport, so the airstrikes and all this stuff happened, and judo was kind of his ticket out, right? So he got a judo scholarship and went to high school, even though everyone in the village was like, he lived in a village, right? Yeah. Like, well, you, can't go to, you can't go to high school, you know, you gotta, you gotta work on the farm, you know? Uh, it's crazy, you know, and he did, and then, you know, he had a scholarship to college to do judo at the prestigious Kukushkan University. Wow. Yeah, so that was a really cool thing. No one went, you know, to college, you know, before him. You know, this is 1930s Japan, right? 1940s Japan. So then he was good at that. And then they had this global initiative to spread judo, which, as you know, awesome. yeah. Maeda was, you know, a couple generations before my father, but he partook in this thing. And, you know, he was selected, had an opportunity to go overseas. And he took that, came to New York, and then just started teaching judo. You know, and then I was born. And then, of course, I was forced into judo myself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just natural, right? <laughs> yeah, naturally. So that's sort of my beginning. And, uh, you know, I grew up doing it and, you know, I ended up loving it. So, and it wasn't just judo, right? I mean, he, it was like a full spread, like Aikido. Can you go into a little bit like everything else he was uh, teaching you? Yeah. So he's primarily a judo guy. And then, you know, he saw some limitations in just teaching judo too, right? So he yeah. trained under Masoyama and all these karate masters that were in New York. Oh, okay. Old, old Nakamura, you know, all these guys from, you know, the Oyama and the Sado and the full contact karate guys. Yeah. But he did that. So then eventually he started teaching karate. And then, you know, to pay homage to the Japanese jujitsu that came sort of before judo, you know, he started reading those books and then realized, yeah, you know, it's karate and judo, a lot of similar elements there. And then he sort of developed his own style of, you know, Japanese jujitsu. And then, you know, KBI's his dojo became like a Japanese martial art center, and we did Japanese jiu-jitsu, Aikido, and karate. So I did all three, you know, growing up, and then I dabbled in anything, you know, that was grappling and combat related. You know, I boxed a little, I wrestled in high school and college, things of that nature, and I loved it. You know, I loved it. That's awesome. Yeah, and that kind of segues into another thing because I study all, but I favor the the grappling side of yeah. everybody's got like, like their folk style or whatever yeah. uh but like even i had a nice conversation with jimmy pedro mm. uh not the name drop uh <laughs> <laughs> but he was going into like the first like martial art like as far as martial arts go was in the states was judo and it goes all the way back to like teddy roosevelt there's some really yeah. good letters of his just you know, proof that that's what he was a real sportsman and yeah. and there was a emissary that was teaching him i always thought it was interesting and or as Jimmy said, even if you looked at cartoons growing up, like the Flintstones, he's doing a hip throw or a goshi, or a, you yeah. know, it's yeah. been around for a long time. Can you go specifically, at least uh, from your perspective, the differences between uh, Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Japanese jiu-jitsu and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, there's a whole, that's a pretty big, uh, big difference. You know, I think yeah. jiu-jitsu is, you know, they taught these warriors essentially 
how to defend yourself when you lose your sword, right? Because the sword was everything, you know? They right. Back then, so it's like the sword was the weapon of choice, right? Sometimes you lose your sword, you know? And then what do you do? All right, so now you have to do some self-defense stuff, you know? And they had this whole slew of punching, kicking, takedowns, this and that. And then that's just the origin of Japanese jiu-jitsu, you know? Because it was for, you know, war and fighting people potentially with weapons, you know, they really didn't focus on the ground element because... You know, if you're on the ground and the other person has a sword and then there's yeah. ten of them, you're not going to go on the ground, right? Right. Well, that was sort of the beginning of the Japanese jiu-jitsu sort of situation. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, from my understanding, it could yeah. potentially be wrong too, right? Yeah. So, Jigoro Kano was a Japanese jiu-jitsu student who was a synthesizer and he was sort of uh, a lot more than just what he's known for in the martial arts world. He was huge in the Japan for the Olympic movement, Right. Because the isolationist country, they didn't really deal with the outside world for a very long time, right? So Kano was like, no, we got to go out to the world, partake in this Olympic thing and integrate, right? So he was very political. He wasn't just about, you know, judo. This is a little bit later on after he developed his judo system, which was essentially Japanese jiu-jitsu. Okay, got it. No He just put striking out, right? Right. And he was like, all right, I'm going to call it judo you know, the gentle way. And then everyone in the Japanese jiu-jitsu community is like, yo, what the hell, man? Yeah. You know, like, this is the same thing that we've been doing this whole time. It's just grappling. You're going to call this new sport, it's jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Right? So that's <laughs> what happened with judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you know, I guess like in the 80s and 90s happened, you know, exactly the same, in, you know, when Kano invented uh, judo. So Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you know, judo evolved as this massive worldwide sport. You know, and, uh, you know, it became this huge thing. And then Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was like, all right, you know, stand-up's nice, but we're going to focus a little bit more on the ground. And then they took that and just evolved it, right? So sure. a whole new thing, and it became its own movement, and it, it just went on a completely another path. You know, kind of like a parallel path, right? Because it's still both grapplers. Very right. Similar, you know, and people talk about the differences, but, you know, there's a lot more similarities than differences, I believe, you know, with Judo and grappling and, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and wrestling, right? Interesting, yeah, and I'm you know I'm a history buff. Anytime like history channels on, yeah. that's, that's why it was so interesting to hear things like that. And I mean, there's even um, I'm not sure exactly what country it's in, but there's a big. I'm not sure if you've seen this video; it's pretty popular. It's a big field, a bunch of people, and in the middle, it's people like full samurai armor with the long uh, spears, the blunt weapons, of course, and they pretty much use that to get in within the spear range, and it's all judo. Jiu-jitsu right to a blunt like blade. It's like the tap yeah. out, right? Yeah. And to me, I'm like, that's so awesome because you see, because yeah, Jigoro Kino. I mean, all yeah. this goes back to like feudal or ancient Japan, and yeah. you see the little subtleties out of that. And I thought, wow, you actually see what this was meant for, the application of it. Yeah, and you know, people misunderstand a lot of the techniques, right? Like, oh, the technique is the guy goes like this, and you go like this, you take that boom, that's it. You know, like you don't really control, you don't fight the position. Okay incrementally improve position to isolate a limb, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it comes from a different time period, right? Sword fighting, boom, throw the guy down, and then you take your little dagger, and then that's it. So there is no need, you know, to go knee on belly and then wait for the arm to come up and then, you know, juju it. It comes from a different time. So you're criticizing it from a different lens, different perspective. And we've been spoiled, you know, in the modern day because we have such, you know, huge knowledge base of, you know, jujitsu, as you know, right? So, right. Yeah. yeah. Thing. You know, I think about this stuff a lot. Yeah. Very interesting. 
Yeah, very interesting. Because even Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has evolved so much since, like, 93 or, or oh, before yeah. the Gracie Challenge. Let's go further into your training. I like to ask guys when they come on, especially as high caliber as you, uh, like, your philosophy, not just in learning for yourself, but in teaching others. What is kind of your general philosophy in teaching people of any belt, rank, any level, whether it's learning skills, drilling, how hard to do randori? Go ahead, go with that. Yeah, uh, just my training philosophy, you know, everyone comes from a different background, you know, and uh, it's so easy to compare yourself in this world, right? And I do it, you know, I'm guilty of this, we're all guilty of this. You have to really go at your own pace and, you know, you can't judge, you know, that's the most important thing because people come from different backgrounds. You know, we have guys at my judo school who start 35 years old, they're working stiff, they sit in an office all day, they come, they already have knee and back problems, they're kind of out of shape, you know, they want to learn judo, and it's like, you can't expect the same thing from that 18-year-old kid that's been doing judo in my program for five years. You know, okay. you have to go your own pace, right, don't judge yourself, and then other people, don't judge him, you know, don't be an asshole, right, and really, you know, slowly go, slowly go, and I try to equate it to like a motorcycle. Like, I got to go clutch, and then I can go here, and you have to really ease into it. You can mess yourself up. You know, and the thing about judo is not only will you mess yourself up, but you'll mess your opponent up, too. I preach at the dojo, and respect, you know, it's, it's another huge thing, and it kind of ties together, right, with the motorcycle thing because, yeah, yeah, because the littlest thing, you know, the microaggressions and the this and that, it can potentially escalate, and then, you know, it becomes sort of a cancer, right? So, yeah, let's spark light, and then all of a sudden, yeah, you want to really be, so knowing yourself, knowing your opponent, right? Those are some of my, you know, main tenets of the dojo, you know, and it's sort of a, a zero tolerance policy that I try to have, you know, and I'm guilty of it too, you know, sometimes you forget, you know, what you are and, you know, when it's so hierarchical, right? Martial arts. It, it is, in all styles, right? Can you even go into the subject, especially uh, for throwing arts, such as judo, just how important Kazushi is? Because some people, they'll start training like a first strobe of Sotogari or Ogoshi, and it's cool to drill the movements, you know, the motions of it, but the setup, you know, you're not going to throw, like I tell my guys, you never throw a stagnant guy. So can you go into that for people a little bit, like the, what yeah. your philosophy is on it? I mean, Kazushi is so important, you know, and it's kind of a difficult concept, right, to off-balance someone. And then you teach, like, you go like this with your hands, you stand, and you do these movements about making yourself do the movements. Right. In order to instill off-balance. But it's kind of a very difficult and esoteric concept, right? Because you're only off-balance for a point, you know, whatever seconds, because, you know, we're bipeds, right? You shift your weight one way, or you base out this direction, and then all of a sudden that off-balance is gone. So you have to really like thread the needle on that when you're attacking the technique. And yeah. the way I like to try to explain it is if you're going for a Sotogari or an outside trip, right, you yourself doing the technique are going on one leg. You're standing on one leg. Right. So if they, your opponent has a good base and they have two legs on the floor, they immediately have an advantage. Put their weight all onto that leg, and then you're creating this one-legged person. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, you have both legs on the ground, Right. And then you could explode and then reap that leg from underneath them. It's about taking your opponent's balance while keeping yours, right? And it's not just about your hand goes like this, your hand goes like that, because it's contingent about your opponent's reactions and what they do while you're doing this thing. And it's so instantaneous. If it isn't perfect, it's not going to work, right? Awesome. You know, and see kind of what your philosophy is on this. Let's say it's either a new throw or a beginner skill set, for example. You know, you'll just drill that one throw for... 
not just the whole class, but the whole week or even the whole month. And just the one side versus both sides, always compared it to, to this, mm. is if I'm going to go against somebody and I train equally both sides, that's 50-50 of my time versus 100%, I, I nail this throw every time. What's your kind of mindset as far as training throws that way? It's very interesting uh, how you put it that way, and I like it like that too. Um, but I try to equate it to like if you're a baseball player and you spend your entire life turning to one direction, right? And your entire body working towards that direction, using your lats and your core and all this stuff. Yeah. All of a sudden, you have to train to one direction. Turn to one direction is a little bit difficult, right? I like to have this sort of a system for my judo guys where, yes, you're attacking mostly to this direction, but you need one or two techniques in this direction. Okay. In order to create this reaction, right? So you could fake one way and go the other way. So you could create this sort of misdirectional, still from one position. Right. Right. And hand position is like my biggest thing for judo because if you're locked up 50-50, it's a very, very difficult game to win, especially when your opponent's bigger. Right. Yeah. It's not like jiu-jitsu when you guys are the same size, 50-50, or even the person's bigger, you have their back. Right. They're helpless. Yeah. They can't really reach you and all their limbs are going forward. Right. If you're doing judo and you're locked up directly in front of them, you know, if the guy outweighs you by 50 pounds, it's going to be hard to throw them, you know, even with, you know, two years, three years of judo experience, right? So fighting for that hand position first, and then you could fake one direction and go the other direction. It doesn't have to awesome. be the same technique going to both sides, but like, for instance, Sasai. I go Sasai to my yeah. right side, and then I go Soto to my dominant side, turn throw to my right side. That way, you nice. know, I cover the four corners, essentially. You know, yeah. if I go inside, trip to the back, now I'm attacking all four corners, but all from the same hand position, dominant hand position, right? If you know how to fight. That makes so much sense. Um, this may be more of a, when you're in competition mode, cause you competed quite a bit high level. How much do you recommend weight training for guys? You know, I gotta tell you, man, I love lifting weights and yeah. my mentors from when I was much younger, this guy, Martin Rooney. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Oh yeah, I know exactly who that is. Yeah. yeah. So he was a big advocate for weightlifting and you know, he got in my head very early on. And, uh, you know, I started to develop a love for lifting and, you know, I kind of overdid it for a little while. You know, I was, my goal was to get 600 on the deadlift and then I tweaked my back many times trying it, you know, I'm not a big guy to begin with, you know, <laughs> so like it did eventually, like, I, I kind of feel like, you know, in hindsight, I might've overdid it and did it help me? Uh, maybe, you know, I feel like if I could go back and talk to myself at, you know, age 20, it's like, Hey man, just get to like. 315, 405, and just rep that out. Don't try to go for, you know, max 600. Like, you're not a power lifter, right? right, right. So I didn't really understand that, and uh, I was just obsessed with lifting, too. And, okay. you know, I, I just wanted to get big and strong, and it was my thing. So, like, it's not necessary, but I think it does help, right? And it really depends on, you know, your judo style, jujitsu okay. style, you know? So... Definitely helps the injury. Definitely to you know do some weight training is better than not doing any. But getting obsessed like I was probably is not the best thing to do. <laughs> I mean, I always thought when I would lift, it helped me less injuries and less you know yeah. bruises yeah. and tweaks and stuff. Yeah. I was going to ask you know we could tie that in as far as competition versus the guy just training week to week, nutrition wise too, or do you just kind of yeah. eat clean? I try to eat clean. But, you know, I'm guilty of not eating clean always. You know, my weight has fluctuated up and down, especially when you're in a cutting weight sort of a situation. I put as low as 178. You know, okay. I weigh about, you know, 215. 
And you know, when I let myself go, I could go up to 230, you know, because I do like the lift and I like to, you know, eat a lot. Eating clean, it's just like three pillars, right? You have to eat clean, sleep right, and then exercise. You know, and those are just, you can't get around it. You know, if you're trying to do martial arts, getting better, you know, being better, there's no way around any of those things because you can't function. You know, you're a high right. human. You, know, you, you got it. Right. You probably don't drink that much. You know, I'm not saying you can't drink and, you know, whatever, but it's really important. Really important. Well, especially the older you get, right? Older you get, <laughs> you yeah. Definitely, you definitely bounce back a little less quick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's interesting, too. Like, what things do you like to do or at least recommend for guys to do for recovery? For recovery? I mean, you can do yoga. There's a lot of different, it's, you know, different strokes, right? For Okay, yeah. And I'm such a huge fan of going to the gym and working out if you know how, right? And there's so much things that there's just so much noise out there too, you know, like with the progressive overload and all these different theories, like you don't need to do that, you know, strong lift program, five by five, you know, deadlifts. Right. You don't need to do that stuff, you know, in order to supplement your martial arts, right? And it really depends on your goal. Are you lifting for better mobility? Are you trying to be like a gymnast? Are you trying to lose weight? All these different things, right? And then it's just so easy to get caught up, you know, with too much information that you're not, you know, you're kind of just doing more damage than good. You know, and I'm a good example of that. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, there's uh, even concepts like, you know, like adjusting the technique to you, your body. You may have a different, you may be lanky, you may be shorter, stockier, uh, and everything in between. As far as that goes, do you have, in particular, do you have like a favorite throw or combo setup for yourself? Like, do you have like kind of a go to? Hmm. I do. I mean, I have a couple of different things that I like to do, but I I don't like the traditional mindset of the judo of like, this is my favorite technique. This is my tokuiwaza. I could throw anybody with this one thing. I really like focusing on like the gameness of the judo, which is like okay. for position, fighting from advantage positions. When you're in a disadvantage positions, finding the right way to bail out of those positions and be offensive at the same time. I like the game that I'm playing that way, it allows me to improvise a little bit more, right? So I'm always a little bit more in tune of where's this person going to be? How can I anticipate his movement depending on what my hand position is like? Things of that nature is a little bit more, you know, and I don't think it's the right way. It's just the way that I like to do it. Maybe some of the best of the best really think this way too. I don't really know. You know, a lot of the throwing artists, we we have Sambo, Shui Jiao, Judo. Yeah. I mean, you can talk with Lavelle, the book, uh, Mongolian Wrestling. It sounds like book, you know, Mongolian wrestlers, they're like, man, I mean, they're tripping horses, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, how, how am I going to get on the horse? I just trip them. Yeah. So if you go against anybody that's a throwing artist, that subtlety of like the push-pull, the Kazushi, uh, they really yeah. feel even a minute reaction. And that just, yeah, the game of it, the setting it up. I love that. Even, you know, jujitsu too. Right? How am I going to get to this back take or this guard pass? You know, I'm not going to fight against each other. You kind of set it up. So that does answer very well. I think that's a little more natural too, as you said. Can you give a good example of like, for instance, like when people learn Osotogari, right? Yeah. That's a good one because it's just a simple outside trip and people learn it. And they're like, all right, you know, I'm drilling it. You're drilling it from 50-50 right versus right usually. Right? This right. is a specific position and there's no advances there whatsoever. So when you're 50-50 right versus right, there's a million different things that could potentially happen, right? But when you right. hit that Osoro from that stand, like standing position, it's very difficult to do, right? 
So it's like you have to gain the advantage first where you cut the hand and your hand's higher, you have more leverage, and now all of a sudden you can enter in that path, right? But if you can't okay. get there because the other person's better at grip fighting, then you're never going to be able to throw them with that technique that you drilled 10,000 times. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's a very unique thing that sort of gets overlooked, I think, even in the highest levels of judo. The best athletes, you know, judo, that's the problem with judo. A lot of it relies on athleticism too. Some of the most freak athletes, they don't even have to think about some of this stuff because they're just so powerful, so strong. Boom, pop right in, yeah. Like, oh, you just grab them and throw them. It's like, how is that helpful teaching this guy or even teaching me, you know, when I, I was in the learning space, right? Can you explain to me more? And I was getting, ah, I don't know, I just go out there and throw them, you know? So, <laughs> it's that easy, man. Yeah. yeah, that's just so interesting in the concepts. And the other character I'd like to get in with you, like, how much did you like to focus on Nawaza? Nawaza, I like Nawaza, you know, and I wish I focused on it a little bit more, but I did, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu also, and, right. you know, kind of like as a hobby, right, just to cross-train a little bit, and I yeah, had some okay. great Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you know, teachers, uh, or, you know, co-working out sort of situations, part training partners, and, uh, yeah, I really like it, you know, I'd probably say I spend about 20, 30% of my time training on Nawaza, you know? Awesome. And uh, I really enjoy it, really enjoy it. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, just be well-rounded. I mean, you have, like, uh, Travis Stevens, and it's, you know, I mean, he definitely, that strong judo background, obviously very popular with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and you just see how they just, that cross-training again, you know, that blending. It's really the same, similar sport. You know, I don't want to say it's yeah. the same sport, but, you know, I always have this little uh, mind exercise, like, all right, change one rule in judo, change one rule in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Okay. Sports closer, right? Yeah. Think about that, and then, you know, I, I like to pose that question. Because it's an interesting thing, right? I always thought, especially, you know, things are more competition-based now. I always thought Osekomi is, is such a neglected subject. It doesn't even translate correctly pinning-wise, right? It just holds. It's such a, a neglected subject. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can really hold someone down and you increase that body weight or that yeah. pressure as you go. How much do you like to focus on that side of things? Mm, you know, not so much. You know, I don't really like the rule of, like, uh, with judo and Iwaza. I think it's limiting. Yeah, right? in terms of because there's no progression. Pure judo athletes in my judo school who are guests, right? Who don't train the way we train, and then you pass their guard and you pin them. They're like they try to get out. Like, all right, you got me. Tap. Let's start over. You know, like then there's no nothing progresses from that position. So it's like I don't really like that, and it is limiting. There are people who are experts at it. Like for instance, Jimmy Pedro's uh, pinning combination system. It's very nice. Yeah. You know? very interesting it accounts all the different reactions that the person might escape and he transitions from kesegatame oshiro kesegatame you know yokoshigatame to tatashiho you know all this stuff uh i don't focus on it too much you know because then i would be catering specifically to teaching sport judo and that's okay you know there's some competitors in the dojo and i will teach them you know specifically winning judo tactics but that's not what it really is about you know you want to further your knowledge you want to make it fun and interesting, and you want it to really expand your mind, right, when you learn this stuff. And right. You want it to just, oh, I held you down for 20 seconds, so I win, you know. Let's step yeah. back on our knees and, you know, knee wrestle for a few minutes. Like, yeah. that drives me crazy, you know. Yeah. Like, why, 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 why bother then? Yeah, what are we doing here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah what's the point of this? So, I mean, yeah, you've competed a lot. You've you won many competitions, three-time World Cup medalist, Pan American Grand Prix silver medalist. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, 
What could you say to people versus like a recreational person or someone who's doing this because, okay, I have this full-time job, but I love judo. What would it take training-wise and dedication-wise, you think, for making someone wanting to be a champion or compete at a higher level? You know, it really does come down to the athlete, right? I've had guys who've done judo for a very long time that kind of freezes up in competition. I've had kids that come in that are just fearless, right? You just never know, you know, where you're starting. Everyone starts at a different point. Um, when people say to me, like, hey, I want to compete, it's like, okay, why? Why is this really the most important thing? Sometimes it's like, man, I just, you know, I'm bored or I feel spineless and I want to prove to myself that I can do it. You know, it really depends on the reason why. And if the why is compelling enough, you know, I'm more than likely, likely to help them, you know. Yeah. But it does take, uh, you know, because a lot of competition is dangerous, you know, and it's super high and the reward is you know, a goddamn piece of fake metal thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Hear about yourself. But truth of the matter is, you don't know who you're going to get, right? It's the luck of the draw, right? So you're going to go out there and this very high-risk stuff that you're doing. You're going just because you need to prove to yourself and for, to show your ego and you okay. lose. You know, that could potentially do more damage than good. Why do you want to compete in the first place is a conversation that I always like to have when someone says, I want to compete. And I know coaches that are like, oh, good, you know, more for my competitors and my competitive team. It's like, I don't really like that mentality. Um, Interesting. That's smart. It's, it's, uh, it's not for everybody. It really is not. Yeah. Oh, I don't really like it that much either. Being at a tournament all day sucks. Yeah. I don't yeah. I, yeah, you go to coach and you're like, yeah, as into it as, as your guys, but uh, yeah, it's an all day event. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. always comes down to screaming, cursing. It's just like I see. <clears throat> Some of the ugly side, it's like, hey man, I thought you were preaching. Yeah. And discipline. You're sticking your finger in the referee's face, like, you mother, you took the wrong thing. You suck this, that, this, you know, how dare you? And it's like, oh man, like, how do I ever want to even be a part of this? Yeah, and that's the kid, the kid's side. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, my, my kids are like, yo, Sensei, like, why is everyone doing everything you sound tells not to almost? And it's just kind of like, I just don't really like it that much, truthfully. What's that competition? Yeah, you get as bad as some of these uh, soccer parents, right? Hey, yeah, uh, yes. Or you, yeah, you do see that quite a bit. Yeah, and I get that. I get that. Like, even if you get to the highest point of it, right, the highest level, like, let's say, the Olympics, you know, the return on investment, so to speak, is a very personal thing. Or, or I did like the way Jimmy worded it. It's like to, to his dad, because he was a Jew Olympian as well, yeah. he liked to word it like there's two things you could do to represent your country. You know, you got military service, of course. Yeah. And then Olympics. And, you know, and there's there's more. There's more. But, like, the, really to buy out and go do something. And what do you like to do for, you know, your students just to help them maybe work weak areas? Or you mentioned, you know, the mental side of things. How do you like to help people out? You know, see them struggling and things like that? You know, it depends on the... This is a tricky question. That's a good question. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I like to teach the class, you know, the needs of the class, the general class. And then if there's someone that that's needs extra help, you know, I'd probably teach something that's probably more beneficial to them. But in the context of a structured class where everyone can sort of benefit from it, right? And if individuals are struggling, you know, I like to go out there and just give one-to-one sort of, a, you know, quick feedback. Hey, you're doing good. Or, hey, you know, go like this. You know, not too micromanaging, right? Okay. You know, there's 30-something, 40-something people in a class. You don't get to do that all the time, you know, which is kind of unfortunate. But, you know, sometimes I see, like, the most amazing thing in class, and I'll always remember to try to 
send one or two emails at the end of the class, something that really left with me. You know, like we have a guy, you know, this guy, Kevin, he's an older guy, you know, man, he's like in his 40s, two kids, you know, he's like works like a dog, you know, in finance and he comes in works out hard and it's like, man, it's like the most inspiring thing, right? He came to judo when he was like 40 something years old and he trains with the best and he's a brown belt. He's been doing it for like five years. So like when I see that, it's like, oh man, you know, like I try to teach to him almost, right? Every time he's in the class, I try to teach him like, hey, let's do right side versus left side, you know? And then I teach the Kenkaiotsu situation and the combinations that may potentially help him more than everybody else. But, you know, everyone else can benefit from it too. Of right? course, yeah. And hit whatever thing that we were working on before, I'll send him an email like, hey, it was a good job. And, you know, hopefully it means something to him, you know? I think it yeah. But it makes me feel good and it's a good working relationship i think and that's how i like to really help my students you know everyone has different needs different motivation some people don't need it you know some people want to just come in sweat bang heads and you know god bless yeah believe me like there's there's other jobs that could pay more money but that's not why we're doing it we, you know i love helping people i i did have a question you have two judo dojos academies uh, do you guys have the drop floor or spring floor or do you just have mats or just mat. like, two layers yeah. of mats. two layers of mats just work on that break fall, right, baby? <laughs> work on break fall. Yeah, uh, Randori is really scary thing always, man. It's just so dangerous. You know, yeah. you make a mistake in jiu-jitsu, you could tap, right? And then there's the extend but don't hyper-extend unspoken rule. I mean, it's not unspoken. Yeah. It. You could extend the arm, don't hyper-extend it. And then when you're working with someone that's good and in control, the likelihood of you getting injured, not very high, right, in jiu-jitsu. Right. You know, you make a mistake and you try to clip out of a throw, you land on your head, you land on your shoulder, you put your hand down, your arm breaks, you know, so. Yeah, there's no bueno. I, there's so many interesting, like I tell my guys when we do sambo and, and we'll do judo, jujitsu as well. Uh, it's hard to tell if someone sets you up good enough or, or maybe you, you made the wrong move or whatever, but we do practice break balls quite a bit and we'll even do randori where it's like, okay, go 20% if it's new or so on and so forth. At some point, uh, you're getting hit with the throw throw yourself into the break fall because now you can rely on when the floor is there. I mean, you want to fight, of course, but if you fight, maybe I'm more asking you this question. How do you like to have your students confront like, hey, okay, I'm getting thrown here. You know, how hard do you like them to coach to fight it? To Okay, let me accept this throw and break fall. Hmm. That's a very good question. You know, the thing about the break fall, a lot of times, like you can do the right thing, right? I'm going in for a sort of guy. I'm reaping back into the bend of the knee, right? You know, the knee bend this way. Safe. Right, but all you gotta do is the person taking the throw turns really quickly, and now you're reaping to the side of the knee. Yeah, it's a very dangerous game. I don't let white belts go with other white belts. I don't let white belts go with other yellow belts. Usually, I'll let. It all depends on the person's background and athletic ability. But usually, I like to do green belts and above. So stand up, and then even then, green belt versus green belt is a very rare occasion. You know, if I know both of them can handle it, I trust them. Then I say, hey, maybe 50 percent. But a lot of these guys, by the time they get there, they've done so many crash mat throws that they're used to taking the falls. And that's what getting used to that stimulus is going upside down, person reaping your knee and taking your head going like this. Yeah. <laughs> that way, when they fear it less, they're much less likely to twist out of it or... That's a great point. Okay. Yeah. That's a great okay. point. Getting them used to the falling, the tumbling, crash mat throws are... And, you know, I let these guys look forward to it, right? White belts come in like, oh, when can I do that? And it's like, yeah. when you can throw someone that's fully cooperative and then you can take a fall in a fully cooperative setting, then you can do some non-cooperative stuff. 
So there's a whole structure leading up to that that's designed to protect you. So the white belts can throw on the crash mat, but they can't be thrown, which doesn't always happen when I'm not looking. Yeah. <laughs> we both know that. Yeah. As a yellow belt, you could take the falls, and then when you hit the green belt, you could go right into But, you know, if you wrestled in college, I'm like, all right, put on a gig, go ahead. Right, you got, yeah, it depends on the background. And you get, that's the other thing. When you see them go out there and it's time for Randori or sparring, uh, you, you definitely see, okay, th- what their experience was. This guy definitely was, he did football in high school. You can just tell, yeah, uh, yeah. or you can tell when there's an officer, they got a very good, like, keep the ball in front of you vibe, uh, you know, or when they have nothing, and, and that transfers too. And that was the other point, like, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu mimics the judo belt system. What is it like, at least from your experience, with judo as far as belt system goes and progressing? Yeah. That's a very interesting thing, you know, and you just said Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo have very similar things, but it comes from the same place because Judo traditionally, not going back 100 years, but white, yellow, green, blue, purple, brown, black. Yeah. So Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was like, all right, yellow, green, gone. White, blue, purple, right? So that's why it's so much longer to get to the blue because you're sort of bypassing the yellow and the green from what I understand. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But the philosophy of the belt is a lot different in Japan. In Japan, a judo black belt doesn't mean much. You know, a first-degree black belt. Historically, they had white belt and black belt. That's it. And I'm sure you've heard this story a million times, and I've said it till my face is blue. One color belt. It was a white gi with a white belt to signify purity, right? Underneath, to show that you have no weapons. And there's a theory, you know, to prevent women from doing judo also. Right, but that's from a long time ago. Was a different. There's a lot of that. Yeah, a lot of that stuff. You know, unfortunately, yeah, I don't agree with that stuff. But it was a different time. So that was it. White gi belt, and you know, in sumo too, that mawashi, you're never supposed to wash it. That was the biggest thing in mawashi. So going to a training center in sumo, those things, those little diaper things that you wear, they're disgusting because you're not supposed to wash it. And that was part of the Shinto situation. Belt develops a certain patina as you age and as you develop, right? It's the soot from the mat, it's the blood and the sweat that makes darkens the color of your belt that showed your experience. So judo, you know, everybody's a white belt, but when you walk into a dojo, the person with the dirtiest belt was the person with the most experience. Watch out for that guy, man. <laughs> yeah. So was, All right, white belt, black belt, you know? And then it became this thing like, if you have a black belt, you know the basics, you're ready to go. But, you know, even in Japan now, like, middle school kids have judo. Well, it's in, the, it's in the schools in Korea, Japan. And I think, I'm not sure, and I mean, the States is a little more wrestling, but that's more after school. You know, why would you not want your kids to know some basic, even just the breakfall side of things? Yeah, you know, there's a huge initiative in Japan to put judo in all the schools, but there weren't enough qualified instructors, right? So they just really systemize it and package it in a pedagogical way to teach gym teachers to teach judo. And there was a crazy number of kids dying from getting thrown on their head and breaking their necks. So that would be why. <laughs> it's out there on the internet. You know, it was kind of a really sad thing that happened. And, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous sport when you think about it. Take two kids, it's like, hey, slam each other, you know? Right. So it is in the school systems, but I think they cut back a lot, you know, uh, Interesting. Okay. It's almost impossible, I think, to do it in the United States. Insurance is huge. You know, a couple kids that get hurt. It does happen, um, unfortunately. Or you hear the coconut head noise, heads hitting. But you know what? Did it. 
right, with collegiate wrestling. Because you have freestyle Greco, right. which is the two Olympic styles, but when you wrestle in the United States, you don't do either of those styles. You don't touch those styles in the schools. You have a right. collegiate system. Even in the NCAAs, it's a modified collegiate system because you don't want people getting thrown on their heads, right? They get riding time and this, and the rules are catered to a kid's safety. You know, if you did something like that, then potentially judo can be in the school systems. But even then, it's a sport where the goal is to slam the other person who has a better shot being in the school systems. And, you know, like judo, especially Jigaro Kano in the beginning, it was a full array of everything. It's not just, I mean, it's definitely more sport. And even Kanagurumi, you can't really, uh, even though the Mongolian judo guys have gotten around that a bit, uh, and and, and the Korean guys, um, they got some very, very interesting variations. But it had, like, weapons training. I'm sure you had the full array of, like, the weapons training uh, and everything, correct? Yeah, like the traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu knife techniques and then the bow staff techniques and but, you know, there's limitations, you know, being attacked by a knife in real life is not what you do in the dojo with a plastic yeah. knife. It's just a completely different thing. You know, and if your dojo instructor is telling you, like, no, you can really defend yourself against a guy with a knife trying to stab you, you know, like, that doesn't know what about, you know. And it's a different, yeah. yeah. It's a different time, you know. It's a, it's a one-off thing back in the day. Like, this is the last chance, you know, if you defend yourself, right? So I've done some of it, you know. And I'm sure people master it and dedicate themselves to it. You know, God bless those people. But me, you know, not so much of it. Let me just beat you up the, the planet. Uh, that's that's another way I like people describing judo. It's the, yeah. We beat people up the planet. The gentle way, right. No. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what's the worst injury you ever had? And then I had a lot. You know, I tore a pack that that's what kind of took me off the Olympic path. You know, fully third in the world. I don't want to say I was going to make it, but you have to be top 30. And, you know, it was a good little run. You know, I was pretty close, and then I blew my shoulder out, and that was it, you know. Um, yeah. I so bad, though, because it was like, I mean, it was devastating for me emotionally. You know, you spend your whole life doing it, you can't get it. But injury-wise, it wasn't so bad, you know. I got a concussion once that was really, you know, it was like my third one or something, and it took me out for like a month, you know. Wow. And I didn't think straight, and. I was getting confused, right? Like I would be going somewhere and I would forget where I was going, you know? And that was really scary because you're driving somewhere and you're like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, shoot, where yeah. were we going again? And yeah. you're driving in circles and you're like, you pull over and you're trying to remember where you were going. And you're like, man, you know what I mean? And you have to That's crazy. There and you're like, oh, shoot, I'm going to the doctors, you know? Like, and it was like wow. really scary. Um, that was a tough one because after about a month, I did feel better over that mental hurdle of going back in the gym and you know Rudo again was was kind of scary yeah that was tough that was tough yeah i'd say that counts i mean oh my goodness um well the flip side of that what is your proudest career memory i don't know man it's just every time i think about like my career you know i think you know the time i spent with my dad he's still around it's not like he's dead or anything right like uh you know 2007 i won my first national championship weird situation where if you're number one in the country and you win nationals you secure a spot to go to the world and in judo you have to be there's they only send these only send one guy per weight class to the world championships to rec, to rec, uh, represent the united states so it's a big deal right because yeah. person goes um i wasn't number one in the country i was like i don't know i was like ninth or tenth i wasn't even really on anyone's radar and by chance i won it so then you have to do a best two out of three national champ versus the number one guy. Yeah, and then I beat him again, 
And then all I had to do was beat him again to go to my first world team, you know? And that was a big deal because up until then, I've never really even meddled, I think, at the Nationals, right? I was kind of a nobody, you know, in 2007. I don't want to say nobody, but, like, I wasn't really on the radar to be a world-class guy, you know? Oh, Shintaro, he's pretty good for the country, you know? That was gotcha. it. So it would have been my first real team, my first world team. It was a big deal. And then I was just coming off wrestling season, and I did a technique that was good in wrestling but not allowed in judo. And then oh. I got dq Oh, man. Yeah. So uh, then, you that's know, probably you, habit, right? Like, just... Yeah. Uh, you could shoot it on the legs. I had a high single, and I reaped the front of the knee. So man. I did the OG hard to the front of the knee, and at the back of his collar, so I shoved his face down into the, into the ground, and he fell face first. And then he was like, ah, he chopped my knee and pushed my face into the ground and did the whole theatrics, and then you get DQ'd. But I didn't get to fight the third one, because it's best two out of three. When you do an illegal move like that, you get DQ'd from the whole tournament. So that forfeited oh. me from the last one, which I didn't get to go to work. Oh, man. Yeah, and it was so sad. And then I was really expecting my father to be pissed, right? I thought yeah. he was going to be fucking angry, you know? <laughs> and, I was expecting it. and then I saw him, and he just kind of gave me a hug, you know? And it was like a very emotional moment. Uh, it's a good, you know, experience. It was a great memory, even though it was a losing memory. Right. Well, you learn from you oh. learn. Or you should. How you learn from it, right? I mean, I did. Yeah, yeah. Don't come off wrestling season and go right into that. Yeah, problem. My opinion from hearing that story. What is it like in basketball and soccer? That's the judo version of flopping, right now. <laughs> yeah, man, they, they do it. You know, uh, whatever gets you in there, man. Okay, let me ask you this: If I have a student and he pulls off a, a very successful a haragoshi, mm. and and the guy hits hard, yeah. maybe doesn't know break balls because he never trains throws. Yeah. Is that a slam? You know, so I, I think... Uh, it's tricky, right? I know in wrestling, if it's one continuous motion collegiate, then it's okay, like if you do a hip throw. But if you lift them up with control, you have to return them with control. So I think that's a good rule if you... That's a good rule, yeah. ...can implement that and distinguish the two. Do you think are the top three judo countries? Hmm. I mean, Japan, you know, always... And I talked about this before, but it's just, their infrastructure for judo to support the judo programs there, it's just, just the depth is insane. You know, and they have these feeder programs from elementary school championships, and these elementary school nationals are massive. They're massive and massive. And then these middle school, school like top schools go scout at these things. And then if you win, you know, elementary school nationals, you'll get a scholarship to the judo middle school. You're in the pipeline. You go to the high school, and then you get a scholarship, and then you go to the college, and then there's a professional league at the end of this, a corporate league, you know, and you okay. get paid, you know, make good money doing it. You know, there's a professional path. So That would help, yeah. Yeah, it just helps, you know. It's like, uh, oh, where do you work? It's like, oh, you know, I work at, you know, whatever bank, Mizuho Bank. Oh, you, you're a banker? No, I do judo there, you know, and it's like, I don't know if they have a team, but it's the equivalent to that, and you get – you know, in Japan, the corporate structure, you get an entry-level salary, and everyone climbs up to, according to right tenure and time and seniority. Your salary just keeps incrementally going up no matter what, right? Because it's just a very rigid hierarchy over there. And you get on that path, in the corporate path, even doing judo, you know? So, Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so it's like, uh, it's great living, too, you know? So people do it. Tons of people doing it, as you know. So Japan's always going to be good because of that. Do you travel to Japan much? 
Yeah, so when I was training, I would go train Kukushan University. Oh, you know, cool. That was incredible, you know, and uh, I've trained in places like France and Brazil. They have schools like uh, I went to this training center called Sojipe or something like this, and they had literally like 70 judo guys and then like 70 Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys, you know, and some people had jiu-jitsu belts and then they were good on the ground and they were getting slammed, right? But then when yeah. it was time to go to the ground, they were killing it. I'm okay with it training together. Division here, I think, judo jiu-jitsu, but I think more so over there. Not, not Brazilian, but like I feel like there are a lot more cross-training going on over there. I mean, do you see judo growing? You know, it's tough to say. Uh, judo is definitely growing, I think, but uh, internationally, the depth is just so deep, right? Yeah. Not not bashing jiu-jitsu, but like you could be a blue belt and you could compete in the world or the Pan Ams or whatever it is. You get the stage, right? You get the show. You know, you get the time and the spotlight. Uh, when you start judo in your 20s and 30s, you're never going to be able to stand on the world stage. You know, the World Cups and the Continental Opens, you're not going to. You know, and even if you make it out there, because you have to be top four in the country to go, right? Right. Getting the top four in the country is difficult. Then when you get out there to medal at one of those things, when you're going up against, you know, 19-year-old Brazilians that's been doing judo for their whole lives, that's a tough, tough racket, you know? Yeah. So I think in that sense, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has an advantage and it's really more for the everyday person because the risk of injury is less. And I don't know if there's going to be, you know, Judo's not that popular in the United States. You know, you know this. Yeah. Uh, for many reasons, you know, the risk of injury is high. You know, I'm not making a very good case for Judo right now, but the risk of injury is high. Yeah. You know, I think it's not taught properly a lot of the times, you know, uh, it's a difficult sport. It's a very difficult sport to do. Very long time to master. And by the time it gets interesting and fun, you've probably racked up a lot of injuries. Right? So. <laughs> they, they do. Anna. Well, I mean, you have a very popular YouTube channel. You post a lot of awesome techniques, setups. How do you come up with different ideas for what to film next or do next? Usually I just teach whatever I taught that day. Sometimes it's like I do judo, I work out, and I'm like, all right, you know, uh, can you hold the camera for me? And then I'll do, you know, five to ten techniques and I just post them every day. And yeah, and of course, Judo Fanatics, and you can find it on BJJ Fanatics as well. And you had these two awesome ones coming out and you are just talking about maybe doing more advanced setups or whatnot for the next one. This is awesome. And what's it like working with those guys? It's great, man. Bernardo used to come to my Judo school. It was such a wonderful thing. You know, he came to my Judo school uh, in Bernardo Faria. Yeah. Uh, he was going for his last world championships and he was going against this guy. I don't, I don't know what his name was, but he does like a drop Sanagi. And, you know, I want to do some stand-up, so I don't want to get caught drop Sanagi. Can you teach me? I want to maybe be able to throw him. Can you show me some stuff? Sure. Would love to work with you. And then he came and trained for six months. You know, he's a great, wow. student, great athlete. And then, you know, he's like, thank you so much. He did his thing and then moved to Boston. I got a call from him like, hey, you want to come? Thing? You know, the judo basics is interesting. It's not... The traditional basics where it's like, I just show Soto, Ochi, this is how you break, blah, 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 blah. Right. I really go into the concepts of, right, these are the different concepts that you need to know. These are the ideas and they're, you know, I don't want to say like they're proprietary, that they're mine or anything like that, you know, because it's been taught before, right? Yeah. But it's my take on the basics, you know, and uh, it was very fun working with them, very professional group. You know, we could drive up from New York to Boston. So, yeah, that's, bad, right? yeah. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, they're very well done. And you look forward to seeing more, of course. What kind of future plans do you have here? Well, I'm finishing up on MBA. 
You know, so I got to finish that up. Oh, cool. Okay. Wow. A lot of my time and uh, it's a huge pain in the ass, truthfully, to do it online, you know, because you go in and at least it's like uh, you go in and you get to hang out and bullshit a little bit. But now it's like being in front of a, a computer all day for a class. It's just the worst. You know, I hate yeah. it. So, like, I got to finish that off for the rest of the year. You know, I have a three-year-old daughter, so trying to spend as much time with her as possible. Right. That'll do it, yeah. Keeping the dojo going, you know, I love the dojo, both dojos, and it, it's a huge pleasure to be around those people. Yeah, I want to get into the speed round with you here. Okay, so there's 10 questions, and we're going to fire them off. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. Speed round. Who would you love to train with from any time in history? Judo or? Anything. You know, in a way, Kosei. Kosei in a way. He's the national coach of Japan. You know, he's a Olympic legend. You know, uh, there's... Tons of videos on him launching dudes, and he's just a great coach. You know, he's just an amazing coach. I'll tell you something about that guy that I've said before. They did an interview to release the Olympians of Japan for 2020. They did a release, right? Okay. And when these things happen, they're like, yeah, 60 kilos is this guy, 66 is that guy, 73. Yeah, it's a hype situation, right? Man, I'll tell you, this guy, he was somber, and he gave the speech, and he goes, it would be unfair of me not to mention the number twos and threes. You know, these guys oh. work their asses off. These guys are just as good. They deserve a spot. You know, and then he, like, went off on these guys, just giving them cred, and he, like, shed a tear, and I was like, man, this guy, is, that's a good coach, right? He's compassionate. He truly cares about every one of his athletes, you know, and I was like, wow, that guy is just, what a guy, you know, and I was like, everybody should be like that, period. If I could just train, I, I did judo with him before. He kicked the shit out of me. Yeah, oh, cool. okay. <laughs> when I was younger. Um, yeah, he's just awesome. I, I would like to train with him. Or maybe even my father when he was younger. That would be cool. That's awesome. Okay, this one we asked a little bit earlier. Do you have a favorite takedown or setup? But I suppose you can include a takedown into a submission specifically. Or an uh, When you're in a losing position, tomonage sumigaish. I like that. I okay, like cool. Faking Tomonage Sumigaish and going Kochi or Ochi. I like faking Kochi and going Sumigaish Tomonage and then working that sort of as a guard pull, right? If you're going to pull guard, might as well try to throw a person with Sumi or Tomonage. I totally advocate that. Yes. Ever, ever just pull guard. If you're going to, if you want to pull guard, go Kochi, fake Tomonage and go Tomonage. If you miss, you've pulled guard, right? So that's Great point. my favorite things, and I think that's my number one advice for all jiu-jitsu people. Forget, you know, Tayatoshi Harai. Learn Tomonage and Sumi. And the thing is, you don't have to really learn it. You just do it, you know, yeah. as if you're pulling guard. Next one, as far as weapons go, do you have a favorite weapon to, to train with or anything like that? I have this idea for a weapon that I really like. It's go for it. thing that I think about a lot. You know, when you, as a grappler, right, you're a jiu-jitsu guy, and you've grappled and done judo or whatever, right? All these different grapples. You said you did sambo. Yeah. Yep. All of a sudden, you're holding a stick. You can't do your sambo. You can't do your jiu-jitsu because you're holding the stick. So it's this wrist bracelet here with a chain attached to it. So you could punch, you could grapple, but then there's a chain hanging off, and then you could grab that chain and swing and hit the person. Or you could I do, gotcha. do like a sort of a you know, cross-stroke situation. Cool, you cool, yeah. Wrap it to control their body as if you're holding them in a gi. Right, because if you throw the chain and then catch it behind his back, now you have upper body control. Now you can do all your grapple attacks, and then if you disengage, you could wrap it up in your hands, and you could also strike. It's like my idea. It's kind of stupid, 
But, that works. We're getting John Wick with it now, right? Yeah, it's a cool idea, right? Like, uh, I, I think it worked, it worked perfect. A weapon specifically for grapplers. For, oh, for sure. That's perfect. And next one, what is something new you would like to learn? Not martial art based, just something in general. I mean, I'm doing like corporate valuation and, you know, global strategy now in the MBA. I think these guys look at me like, man, this guy knows nothing, you know, because I don't come from an academic background, nor do I come from a traditional corporate background. So I think I'm in that group and people are rolling their eyes like, man, this kid's stupid, you know? So I, I want to sort of learn this stuff because I find it interesting. And I think that's something that I'm, you know, actively trying to do and kind of trying to prove myself and to these guys. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm not just grappling, you know. Uh, it's not working for me so far, but it's definitely something I'm trying to learn. Awesome. How good is your Japanese? I'm fluent. Fluent? I can even write like a middle school kid. Nihongo ga skoshi wakaremasu. Oh, good, yeah. Just like me. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always wanted to go, but I know everybody, their first knee-jerk reaction is to go to Tokyo, which would be amazing, of course. Yeah. But I, I like the more like more Osaka side. or uh, Yeah. No, one day, one day, one day. I'll get yeah, what I get. Oh, man, they'll love you over there. Next one here. Who has impacted your martial arts training the most? I'm going to say my father. Definitely. Yeah. But there's a lot of number twos. You know, Martin Rooney was a big one that impacted yeah. me younger. He does a lot with uh, Hanzo, correct? Yeah, he's Hanzo. You know, I used to go there and Hajo would be there. Hanzo would be there. Awesome. Uh, maybe not Hanzo would be there, but like uh, Joe Sampieri, who's another Muay Thai guy. And, you know, he did a lot of the, a lot with NFL Combine and a lot of the UFC guys early on. So he was a big influence in my life. And I also have a sports psych guy who's who's been very good really? for me. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Yeah, really great. It's really good. In your opinion, what movies had great judo in them? What represented that probably the best? I mean, you mentioned John Wick earlier. John Wick is awesome, right? I mean, oh, yeah. got everything, you know, the arm bars and the Ipon Sanagis and the, the guns. And it's just such a fun, modern-ish. You know, the movie martial arts is so different from real martial arts. Yeah. But, you know, John Wick kind of makes it look good and kind, makes it kind of realistic. And, you know, I like knowing that he did some of this stuff, too. In that right. Which, you know, I love that. Definitely appreciate it. Awesome. Yeah, I, I agree too. The last one here, if you had the opportunity to compete and represent the country again, what would you do to gear up for that? Or, or how excited would you be to you know, kind of get back into that, so to speak? You know, my biggest problem was being in the wrong weight class. And, you know, from a very young age, like I always had this thing, like I want to get big, I want to get strong. I'm not a very tall person, 5'8". And well, I'm not short, but... For me to fight in the 220 division in judo, it's just insane. You know, I fought guys 6'5", 6'6", right? They're big, big people. And when I got caught in that weight class, is, you know, Travis Stevens was 81, mm -hmm. right? So I wasn't going to get that. That's probably the weight class I should have been. But I was like, ah, oh, you know, do I want to compete with Travis? And then there was probably five or six guys that were equally good. It's a very deep, deep division. Very equal good. And then I was like, at hundreds, at 220 in the country, the person that was number one, you know, number one and two, I beat them before, right? So I was like, to make it out of the country was a lot easier at 220. So I won U.S. National at 220, and then I went internationally, and then I had a really tough time on the international circuit because, you know, I'm a foot shorter than a lot of the guys that are competing at that weight. Now it's like, if I get back in there, and I fought 178 before, but now if I, you know, I'm, I'm 35, so I'm pretty old in the game, but if I decide, hey, tomorrow I'm going to, 
come back. It's like my first thing is really, really get my diet in check and get down on weight five and then maybe, you know, cut the last six or seven pounds because, you know, weight class is a real thing, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Or not, you know, leverage is real and the uh, height and distance is real. And, uh, you know, I got pigeonholed into that 220 weight class and, you know, smallest guy, weakest guy in the division. So if I go back, you know, it would probably be, you know, more that direction. But you never know. You know, I could have fought 81 my whole career and just lose to Travis or not, you know. But still the opportunity. Yeah. And 220 for me, getting out of the country and representing the U.S. is really important for me. Yeah. Once you start gaining points on the international circuit, you're not going to go down in weight class to start all over again. Right. Yeah. It's like I had momentum. I was 43rd at 220. It's like, why bother going down a weight? You know, I didn't want to enhance that. You know, Travis was like fifth in the world or third in the world or whatever it was. It's like, all right, I'm going to start at zero and climb all the way back up and try to pass the guy. Right. <laughs> didn't make sense, you know? Didn't make sense. In closing here, I just want to refer everybody to your social media. He's on Instagram, Facebook. The YouTube channel's kind of nice because there's some, you know, a lot of free content on there. You're incredible. What a. Oh, thanks for coming up, man. It's, it's been awesome to get to know you a bit. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.